Hello. Regrettably, there is a bad patch of interference lasting for about a minute on this cassette. However, this was on our original master. We come to the second part of the second division of these books of Chronicles. Remember, we are dealing with the realization of the purpose of God. <clears throat> these books of Chronicles, you will briefly remember, span the whole of Old Testament history. They are not like Samuel, the books of Samuel and Kings, just history recorded for us. The books of Chronicles are an interpretation of history, a summary of history, something far more strategic and vital than even the record of history. And you remember they go right back to Adam, and they go right on down to Zerubbabel and beyond Zerubbabel to the coming of the Lord Jesus. In other words, they span the whole of the Old Testament era. And you will remember that we have been dealing with the realization of the purpose of God. We have dealt with the first part, in that is, that which is centered in the life of King David, which was the preparation for the temple, the great passion of David's life was to build a habitation for God. It wasn't a throne, it wasn't just singing, it wasn't even service, it was that God might enter into his rest. This was the deepest passion, the master passion of David's life. Not that he might be met, that his need might be answered, but that God's need, if we can speak of God having a need, might be answered and met. This was the thing that made David the man that he was and gave him the character that he had. He was out toward the Lord all the time, really. And consequently, we have looked at his life and we've seen that the chronicler has in some ways summarized the whole of David's life. We've seen it in this last part in green, bottom of the board, summarized in three great points that the chronicler makes about the life of David. The question of Jerusalem being taken and all that that means. The question of the ark being brought up, which was the highlight of David's life. Undoubtedly, that was the highlight of David's life, the ark being brought up into Jerusalem. He, as you know, it was such a highlight to him that he danced and danced and danced spontaneously before the Lord and brought even the scorn of his wife down upon his head. It was the highlight of his life, the climax of his life. And then, of course, the rest of his years were spent in, the last of his years were spent in the definition and the writing down of the pattern for the house of God, the arrangement of the service of the house of God, the order, the, the singing, the worship of the house of God, as well as the actual plan and pattern for it. Now this evening, we come to the building of the temple, <clears throat> the reign of Solomon. This part, these chapters, from chapter 1 to chapter 9 of the second book of Chronicles, are centered in Solomon. 
Now, there are one or two things before even we look at it, and by the way, we seem to be taking fewer and fewer chapters these Fridays. We're only going to take four this evening, uh, the Lord willing. We're just going to confine ourselves to the first four chapters of this second book of Chronicles. I don't think there'll be any point in trying to get beyond them, even if we could. Um, as we come to this building of the temple, there are one or two things I would like you to note first of all. Uh, one thing is this, that out of these nine chapters, seven of them deal exclusively with the temple. Someone said to me the other night, aren't we getting a little bit unbalanced? We seem to be seeing the house of God in everything. Uh, well, even if uh, that can be um, ch uh, laid to our charge about some of the other books of the Old Testament, it can't be laid to our charge about Chronicles. It, all scholars agree that the key to Chronicles is the temple, the house of God. And do you realize that a man as great as Solomon, the very pinnacle, the very pinnacle of uh, the Jewish nation, its greatest point of glory, of prosperity, of honor, Solomon's life is summarized by the chronicler in nine chapters. And seven of those chapters deal exclusively with the temple. It's as if Solomon is a, is a very, 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 very much a sidelight. Uh, he's just brought in insofar as he was the instrument of God to really bring and build, bring the temple into actual reality. Now that's an impressive fact, is it not? that a, a king so great that even the Lord Jesus could speak of Solomon in all his glory, could be summarized in nine chapters, of which seven deal exclusively with the temple of God. And then I want also uh, to remark that these nine chapters add very little new material to what we have already in Kings. Now, this is a rather remarkable thing, because Chronicles adds quite a lot of new material. But in this point, it does not add any new material, at least not much. <clears throat> the first few verses, the first six verses of chapter 1, are new material. That's about all. And, in a sense, the Chronicler has taken up what we have got in Kings, and has... Uh, in a most remarkable way, rewritten what we've got in Kings, feeling great liberty, much to the upset of some modernist uh, scholars, uh, in expanding certain parts and in contracting other parts. He has felt quite at liberty to rewrite the whole of uh, the King's portion uh, in a new light and to tone down on some things and uh, um, highlight others. For instance, there are some remarkable omissions. We never read here in this uh, chapter anything uh, about um, Adonijah's rebellion. <clears throat> as far as we can see, Solomon came very, very beautifully and easily to the throne. There was no trouble. Neither is it recorded here in these nine chapters the terrible end of Solomon, his apostasy, his thousand concubines, his foreign gods, and so on. All this is just omitted. A most remarkable thing. Just as if the chronicler under the government of the Holy Spirit is seeking to point out to us that the thing about Solomon's life was the temple. 
he did fulfill the purpose of God in his day and generation, whatever his end was. And many of the great men of God have had sad ends. So that's another thing we wish to note. Then again, in David's life, we touched upon the heart of the matter concerning God's purpose. But in Solomon's reign, we reach the summit of the purpose of God in the Old Testament. Now that's important, for we kept on saying in the the last few weeks when we were dealing with the preparation for the temple, that um, uh, here we were getting to the heart of the matter. We were getting to the heart of the matter. All the time we were saying we are at the heart of the matter. There is a sense in which David is the heart of the matter. Solomon is not the heart of the matter. David is the heart of the matter. And that is why there is a sense in which those chapters from chapter 11 to chapter 29, the first book of Chronicles, are so absolutely vital to an understanding of what the Lord would seek to do in our day, in the realizing of his purpose. That's the heart of the matter. Solomon is only the summit. The heart of the matter has been defined, has been reached. Now we go on to the summit, and we reach the greatest point, the fulfillment of the purpose of God. Then again, I should like to make another point, too, before we actually look at it. It is this, that... It is often and very rightly said that David, uh, the preparation for the temple centered in David, is symbolically what we are in down here on earth. We have to take the ground. We have got to know something of the presence of God, cleaving to the presence of God. We have got to know something of the preparation, and that's all conflict and battle fear, 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 battle, all the time, over every step. But many people believe, and rightly, that Solomon sets forth for us the house of God in its incorruptible and perfect, eternal aspect. That house not made with hands, eternal, no sound of hammer or chisel or anything, being just beautifully fitted together in the unseen, in the heavenly. Here we are in all the preparation. Here we are with all the conflict. But uh, it's as it were, they would say to us, as if really Solomon reveals to us that the house of God is being built. The eternal thing is being produced by what is going on in the conflict. Mm. Now that's very true. I believe it's one of the reasons why, for instance, the temple is exactly twice the dimensions of the tabernacle. It is also why there are quite a few things that, as it were, you get the sense of something permanent being reached. The tabernacle was a, a, a thing of pilgrimage, of sojourn, whereas the temple was a permanent building, never again to move. You found its resting place. And the most beautiful part of all is the part that we shall deal with, the Lord willing, next week when the ark is finally and forever brought into its place and the staves are drawn out. The one thing that Moses said, the staves were never to be taken out of the ark of the covenant. But in here, as it's brought into the temple, symbolically, it's as if God has reached his end. He's reached his rest. He's got exactly what he wants. And it is as if 
he just floods the whole thing with an unspeakable glory. Well, that's one very right aspect uh, of, the, uh, of these chapters. And we can draw great help and comfort and encouragement from them, looking at them and viewing them like that. But we're not going to uh, ourselves. I give you that for the benefit, uh, for your benefit, if you wish to look at it like that and study it in that light, it will help you greatly. Just because the Word of God is like a diamond with many facets, and everywhere you turn, there's a, a new view and a new sparkle, a new light. <coughs> There is a real sense in which, in a very right sense, I believe, in which we can look at the building of the house as just a continuation of David's preparation. Here we've had the ground taken, here we've had the ark come onto the ground, here we've had all the arrangement and order defined. Now, at last, we see the house of God built, actually built, in time, in, on earth, some spot where something is being done. And I want us to view, therefore, these chapters in that light, not of the church eternal, incorruptible, and perfect in the heavens, but we will view it as the church in time and in, on earth, uh, in many ways perhaps seemingly very imperfect and very faulty. That's the way we're going to look at it. Well, now, if we turn to these chapters, we turn to chapter 1. The thing I want you to note as we actually look at these chapters is that Solomon's reign begins at Gibeon. It begins at the tabernacle, in the tabernacle, and at the altar. Now, this is a most remarkable thing, and this cannot be a mistake. Neither can it be a coincidence. David's life centered in the ark. You remember? David refused in many ways to touch the tabernacle at Gibeon. He um, arranged for it. He provided for it. But do you remember when the plague hit Jerusalem? A very little, strange little phrase that um, the Holy Spirit has recorded for us. It said, when David appealed to the Lord, he dared not, he durst not go to the tent of meeting at Gibeon because of the plague. In other words, David's only safety was to stay near the ark, to stay in Jerusalem, to stay on the site that he discovered as the altar, uh, the, the, the spot that he discovered to be, in the end, the site of the temple. Do you remember the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, uh, which in his terrible mistake he discovered in the most wonderful way to be the site of the <coughs> temple. Now why does the chronicler, in summarizing the whole life of Solomon, why does he, as it were, mention as the first thing about Solomon uh, that he was found at Gibeon? Why does he make a point? And why does he make a point of emphasizing that the ark and the tent of meeting were separated? Now here we have a very big lesson to learn. The chronicler, the, the Holy Spirit, 
has underlined for us as the first great lesson we've got to learn about Solomon. He underlines for us this great lesson that the ark is separated from the tabernacle. Now, as you all know, as far as the people of God is concerned, that's an answer. The right place for the ark was in the most well say that if the ark out of the tabernacle, the tabernacle had lost its meaning. It was the pattern, it was everything as God had intended it, but it lacked the one thing that gave meaning to everything. The ark was not there. And the ark symbolizes the presence of God. So here we have a most remarkable situation. We have the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle, as instituted by Moses, the servant of the Lord. All the services continued, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, the trespass offerings, all in action. We've got the candlestick, we've got the showbread table, we've got the golden altar. All is just going on, but the ark is not there. This means that God is not committed to what? was originally absolutely of himself. This brings us to a very important point, that you can have a New Testament pattern and you can have everything as God originally intended it without the Lord. You can have everything, everything, to put it into plain, practical words. You can have the Lord's table. You can have the meetings. You can have a shared ministry. You can have your elders, you can have your deacons, you can have your people, you can have your ministry, and yet the Lord not really committed. He may bless it, he may sovereignly use it, he may stand behind it. In some ways, he may give precious experiences of himself. They may all be born again believers, and yet he is not committed. They are left to themselves to keep the thing going. And when a plague comes to the country, the Lord's not discovered in the tent of beating. He's discovered where the ark is. <clears throat> this is why Brother Nee, many years ago, said, in a days of ruin, we should keep our eyes on the ark and not on the tabernacle. He said, keep your eyes on the ark, not on the tabernacle. In other words, cleave to the Lord Jesus in days of ruin. Leave that which is just so-called the church. Don't bother so much about that. Hold to the Lord Jesus as God's Christ. Follow him. Go through with him. Now, the lesson we've got to learn is this, that at the very beginning of Solomon's reign, the ark and the tabernacle have got divided. They are separate. There in Gibeon is the tabernacle, with all its services, with everything as Moses instituted it. There was not one thing wrong, not one thing wrong, not one thing wrong. And furthermore, outwardly, not a single thing missing. No one, not even the high priest, was able to look into the most holy place. So no one knew. Oh, that speaks volumes in this day. There are many, many places, chapels and other places, and companies, and assemblers, and everything else, and outwardly, it's all perfect. 
see into the holiest. And no one can see the ark is not there. There's a veil, but the ark's not there. God, God is not committed. Those with ears to hear and spirits to see can understand what we're talking about. We say, the Lord's not there. He's not there. The candlestick has been removed. The testimony's gone. So you see, as far as the priests and the people went, they all went up to Gibeon. I expect most of many of the more ordinary people, they just didn't realize that the ark was not there. Didn't enter their head. And uh, it was something that was outward, it was something that was perfect. You must not get it into your mind that there was anything wrong about it or immoral or wicked or iniquitous or abominable or something like that. It was all perfect, all good, all right, all as instituted, all according to the heavenly pattern. But the ark was not there. So <clears throat> the thing we've got to understand, first of all, is that somehow or other the ark has got separated from the tent of meeting. And this means simply for us in the 20th century to speak of it in practical terms that the presence of the Lord Jesus, the committal of God, is not necessarily where you have a New Testament pattern and a New Testament order and outwardly everything evangelical and sound. That uh, we must not be taken in by such things. We must learn to see by the Holy Spirit deeply of things. We must learn to trust the anointing which is in us to teach us as to whether this is really true to the Lord, or whether it's only an outward thing, a representation, and not the real thing. So we have to understand that as the first lesson. Where then in this 20th century is the Lord committed? Where can we find the Lord Jesus, holy as head and leader? undertaking direct responsibility for his own work. We have to uh, understand that in our day, this is very true, the ark has been separated from the tent of meeting. So that we have the dear people of God, many ways devoted to the Lord, a knowledge of the Lord, certain amount of personal sanctification and witness and service and so on. But the Lord's heart is not in it. His heart's not in it. His heart's elsewhere. He's gone. He'll bless it. He'll make provision for it. He'll even meet a Solomon there. But his heart's and so the, we've got to understand this. God will bring back the tabernacle to the ark. Not the ark to the tabernacle. Now let us be perfectly clear. God does not bring the ark back to the tabernacle. He would bring the tabernacle back to the ark. That is, it's no good people getting on their knees and saying, Lord, come <coughs> to us, come back to us, do something with us. They've got to get up and go to the Lord. There's certain ground that's got to be left. 
There's a certain order that's got to be left. Something's got to be let go of. Those priests didn't find it easy in the end, you know, to give up that old uh, tent that had served them so well through the centuries. Didn't find it easy. But in the end, the miracle happened, and they brought up the vessels of God from Gibeon into the house of the Lord when it was built. And all found its right place, including the priests. They came. Now you see, why does God meet Solomon not in Jerusalem, but at Gibeon? Because God now is moving to the next great phase in the realization of his purpose. He has got the ground. He has committed himself to it. He's got an understanding at least a few of what he wants. Now he goes to the thing that's got separated. He meets Solomon there. There he is. And there he does something with Solomon. There he speaks with Solomon. We can have all the ministry and all the service of God in an unrelated way. And therefore a confused way. You see what I mean? Uh, there's a lot of it today that goes on. Just ministry and service for the Lord. But it's unrelated. It's not woven in to what God is doing. It's not an integral part of the house of God. It's something which is uh, just simply uh, unrelated. <coughs> because the ark's got divided from the tent. Here we've got the ark and we've got those ministering before the ark. Here we've got the, the tent of meeting and those ministering in the tent of meeting. The thing's got divided. Now the Lord says, we've got to do something about this. We're going to bring that back onto the right ground. Uh, so it's good for us at the very beginning to note that it's always uh, a great uh, difficulty to us all to be thought of as cranks. Uh, and even more difficult for us to be uh, thought of as exclusives, exclusive fanatics, sort of, you know, very peculiar uh, people altogether. But you know, uh, if the ark has got separated from the tabernacle, cleave to the ark. Because if there's going to be any reconciliation, the tabernacle is going to be brought to the ark. There will never be a reconciliation of the ark being brought to the tabernacle. The other's got to be brought. Remember once the Lord saying to me, Thou shalt not return unto them, but they shall return unto thee. That's a big point. So we learn that very, very simply. And also we want to note another thing. What is the uh, character of the instrument God would use to uh, build his church, to build the house of God. Whatever Solomon became in the end, as recorded in the book of Kings, the chronicler keeps that well out of view. As far as he's concerned, Solomon's a hero. There's nothing wrong with Solomon from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. uh, and what do we learn of Solomon as far as the chronicler goes? We learn some very, very wonderful things. Now, this is very important. The New Testament speaks a lot of church building and speaks a lot of church builders. There, of course, there is a sense in which we are all church builders. There is a sense in which it is a unique and 
singular function in the work of God, to build the church, church builders. What is the key to the character of those who would build the church, who would be builders of the house of God? Well, we've got it here. Solomon reveals himself to be a selfless man. Of course, being in Scripture, all of us very superficially gloss over it. We think, oh yes, the Lord came to Solomon, who's only 21. He's ascended the throne, a young man, very, very timid. His father had been a tremendous figure. And he'd stepped into his father's shoes. On top of that, there'd been a rebellion. Someone tried to seize the throne before he got to it. He was surrounded by crafty people who would be only too quick, because he was a young man, to put an end to him, and put someone in his place that suited their end. <coughs> you would have thought, if the Lord visited you, just try and imagine you're in that position tonight. And the Lord really stood by you, and you saw the Lord, and he said to me, now, what would you like? What would you like me to do? Ask. Ask him. Ask him. I believe the Lord was, oh, I don't, I'm not going to say the Lord was cunning, but I believe that the Lord was uh, very, very, very uh, free in what he suggested. I'm quite sure the Lord said, you just to ask him. Do anything for you. Just do ask him. Now that will find out our selfhood very quickly. Very, very quickly we find that ourselves. Because before we knew where we were, we would have said it. It's one of the signs of selfhood. We would have said it. Well, we might have said, well, Lord, <clears throat> safeguard it, Lord. Safeguard it, Lord. Or perhaps we would have felt we needed uh, the life of those that hate us. And there were many that hated Solomon at the beginning. He could have said, well, Lord, wipe them out. I should be safe. Keep me safe. Or many other things. We may have asked. But you see, Solomon asked one thing which many of us would probably never ask. He asked for wisdom. Now this is the thing most of us overlook. Why did Solomon ask wisdom? He could have asked for help. He could have asked for honor. He could have asked for a long life. He could have asked for glory. He could have asked for peace. He could have asked for a secure kingdom. He could have asked for oh so many things. Think of it. The Lord's standing there saying he's given anything in this world. Anything. And Solomon goes and asks for wisdom. You see, it just shows the selflessness of the man. Why did Solomon want wisdom? He wanted wisdom in order to be able to serve God and serve the people rightly. That was the key to Solomon's character. He was so absorbed with service to God and service to his nation that he realized the one thing he needed was wisdom, knowledge, to be able to uh, weigh something up, to uh, be able to arbitrate, to be able to rule, to be able to judge righteously. So he asked for wisdom and for knowledge. That selflessness, now that comes right down to church building. You won't get any church building with self-centeredness. And my word, the self-centeredness 
amongst church builders. You don't get it. People have got their own ministry, and all they can think about is their own ministry, their own function, their own place, their own position in the house of God. And you dare touch it, and they're up in arms. You dare suggest that they, that they ought to tone down a little, be a little more quiet. Oh dear, they're straight away up and so How dare you suggest it? The Lord's spoken to them about it. The Lord's given them a ministry, and they're going to defend it to the end. That kind of thing. You can't touch them. You can't suggest anything. You can't counsel them. You can't advise them. No, they can't let go. You see what I mean? Do you know that's the ruin of the work of God in our day? Ruin. I think of many companies of which I've heard the history to which the key has been position. And all the double crossing, spiritual double crossing that goes on to try and somehow play each other out and get up on top and squash the other down and be something for the Lord. Hmm? That's selfhood. There can be no church building until there is selflessness. It requires people who couldn't care less about their ministry, who couldn't care less about their own life, who couldn't care less about their position, who couldn't care less about their reputation if you're going to get the house of God built. I don't believe at that time Solomon could care less, in one sense, about the throne or himself. What he wanted to do was to be able to serve God and the people. Now that is the key. And the Lord will test us out on that. We shall have to give ourselves and give our time and give everything to the Lord in this question of service. And selfhood is the thing that lies at the root of that as to whether we cut down on how we give ourselves or when we give ourselves or what we give. Selflessness. And another thing I might say is meekness. There was a very real meekness about Solomon, you know, when he said to the kings, for instance, he said, I am young. I am a child. How can I go in and go out for this people? Now that's meekness. For the want of it, I believe the house of God's not been built. Meekness is something which is beyond price for the Lord. What is meekness? Meekness is just that ability to put yourself in the hands of others, even though they damage you. It is the, the key to it is laying down a life in any given situation, being adored. You know as well as I do that the great river of life in Ezekiel's temple came from under the threshold. That's where the doormat was. That flowed out. So you see, really, this question of meekness is very, very important. Now, of course, uh, I'm going to speak to you as if you're all leaders. Um, Monday, perhaps we'll all, you all will be leaders, in one way or another. Well, anyway, you can all be spiritual leaders, anyway, even if you're not out of the leaders. The thing the Lord looks for in leadership more than anything else is meekness. 
It is a thing that all of us naturally have not got. And one of the things I've noticed about the work of God is this terrible, terrible caricature that we find of real leadership. This terrible keeping of the people down, keeping them at a distance, keeping them at an arm's length, that heavy-fisted thing which just does not allow you to suggest anything or even criticize. Now, I'm not saying that we should all be critical. I'm tired of critics. But uh, that's not the way. That's not the way. I, I've learned this, that the Lord makes us safe by putting ourselves into the hands of critics. Now then, every time we stiffen against criticism, we lose, and we know it. And this is particularly so in leadership. Leaders have to have skins like rhinoceroses if they're going to get through. Because there are no two people that agree. Either you've got a soft voice or you've got a loud voice, you're too long or you're too short, oh, you're too flowery or you're too plain, you're too blunt or you're too sweet, or so it goes on. And everyone's got a different idea about you. One over here will say this and one over there will say that. Someone will, as you go out, will shake your hand and say, what a wonderful word, and someone else will whisk out straight past you because they're fed up with you. They haven't got a thing out of it. You're as dead as a dead stone, uh, as far as they're concerned. See? Well, how do you put up with all that kind of thing? Well, you have to learn from it. You have to learn from it. If you fight it, if you punch it, if you rebel against it, if you try to sit on it, if you take a sort of grieved, offended, distant <coughs> attitude to it, you're lost, you're gone, you're finished. Meekness is that thing which, although it has the greatest authority in the world, sit, almost as it were, at the feet of the greatest hypocrite amongst the people of God and learn. That's meekness. And it can learn from the youngest and the most irresponsible in the family of God. That's meekness. Now, Solomon uh, was the greatest of the church book. And the two things that characterize him are selflessness and meekness. Because of that, we naturally find God gives him wisdom. I've never found wisdom, wisdom in a person who is not selfless and meek. Knowledge Yes, but the scripture itself says knowledge puffeth up. Wisdom is the ability to practically apply the knowledge you have. The greatest example of it was when two women brought a child to Solomon. Do you know the story? One said that in the night she'd woken up and found her child there. Uh, and uh, she uh, was quite sure that this other woman had brought her dead child, put it in her bed and taken her, her child. 
They both came to Charles. And you know what Charles said. The thing that we wouldn't dream of saying. What should we do? A great round table conference all around the haggling and the arguing and the vicious science. Cross talk that went on between these two women and no doubt all their relatives as well who were probably far more vicious than the two women. And so it went on backwards and forwards. And then suddenly someone said, well, I'll end this. I'll end it. Bring me the child. Bring me a sword. I'll cut the child in two. And you can each have half. That immediately discovered something. Now, was that just a very wonderful story? No, no, that's wisdom. Solomon knew he had knowledge of a mother's love. And he knew that the real mother of that child would not, she would yell the moment he mentioned the sword. You, you have the child, let the other woman have the child. You have the child. You give her the child. And that's wisdom. That doesn't come through book knowledge, it doesn't come through Bible colleges. It doesn't come through, through any kind of Bible courses either. It doesn't come through any, anything at all. But meekness. And how do we become meek? It says here, in a most remarkable way, and many have questioned the authenticity of it. Solomon went up to Gibeon and he offered 1,000 burnt offerings on the altar. What does that mean? It just means this, it was a devastating work of the cross somewhere. That's all. A devastating work of the cross. There will be no meekness, no selflessness without a devastating work of the cross. We're all self-centered. And there'll be no hope for any of us at all until the cross has done its deep, deep, devastating work in which we've all question of function, ministry, service, petitions, gone overboard become like little children in the presence of God. That's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is when for the first time you get such an idea of your own littleness that you can sit at anyone's feet and learn. So I think we have to learn that. <clears throat> it's all in the first chapter of the second book of Chronicles. There you are. From that, everything else comes. And I might say that Solomon had long life, and he had wealth, and he had honor, and he had glory, and he had a secure kingdom, and he had everything else he could ever have wished, because he put the right thing at the heart. And I know many people who would give anything for wealth, and honor, and glory, and a secure kingdom, and peace, and ministry, and service, and position. They haven't got it. The more they grasp at it, the more they lose it, the more it recedes from them. Cross is the key to it all. When we come to a real knowledge of Christ crucified, then we become like little children. When we become like little children, we, uh, we start on the road of real wisdom. And when we have wisdom, it is the beginning of a family. Wisdom has many children. And if you read about that wisdom that comes down from above, you will find there are a whole lot of other blessings that come in its train. So that's that. And then if we go on, you come to the building of the temple. Some technical mm -hmm. facts about the building of the temple. Just one or two technical facts I'd like to mention that I've noted down. The work began in May. The fourth year of Solomon, in the month of May, the work began. Seven years later in September, it finished. 
So it took just over seven years, a month or two longer uh, it took. The, the dedication of the temple followed, was in the following October, which means a year later, in all eight years, which is a very, very interesting thing. That's one fact about the temple. Seven years in building, began in May, ended seven years later in September, and then the dedication was the following October and the Feast of Tabernacles. Another thing, it was 90 foot long and it was 30 foot broad. Now just you sit there and just try to imagine it. That means the uh, temple was uh, roughly four times the length of this room, if you can imagine, imagine it, and roughly about the width of this room, just actually a foot more than this room, and four times the length. Now, many people think of the, of the temple like Westminster Abbey or some other vast uh, cathedral. It's not anything of it all. It's not at all. True, it was 30 feet high, but it was only 30 feet broad, 90 feet long. Then again, it took 160,000 men working continually and consistently seven years to build it. That is not very remarkable when you think that it took the pyramid 360,000 men to build, 12 years. 160,000 men to build the temple seven years consistently. Then the value in materials used in the temple, not the actual cost of the temple, the value of the materials used in the, in, in the temple, at the most conservative estimate, is at least 100 million pounds. Now, in actual fact, there are far, far wilder figures than that. That is the, the most conservative estimate given. And even that, they had to say it was not less. <coughs> one, one mind reels at the, the whole uh, amazing cost of this project from the uh, material point of view. It was undoubtedly one of the most magnificent structures of the ancient world. It was unbelievably magnificent. Not so much in hugeness as in beauty. When you think of it, just to... Uh, now and I'll tell you a few things if you've got an imagination you'll be able to imagine it you think of the, the place about as broad as this room four times as long as this room you would only be able to see three times the length of this room and down the end would be a great veil of purple, scarlet and blue all worked in together on white the ceiling is completely gold the walls are completely gold, and the floor is completely gold. And it's all worked, it's all the most beautiful embossed and engraved work. Cherubim, lily flowers, and palm trees on the ceilings and on the walls. Along here there are five tables. Behind each table, a seven-branched candlestick, all in gold. And the same down here. And in the centre, at the end, is the golden altar. Edisham says something which really captures one's imagination, if you think of it. He said, there could have been no more beautiful sight than the light, a light, in, in that temple. The whole thing would have scintillated uh, in a mellow light gold everywhere, rich and beautiful coloured 
Italians. And on top of that, encrusted the, the walls and the ceiling were encrusted with precious stones, beautifully set into the gold for all these stones. Now that really makes one's mind real when you think of such a thing of, of fabulous beauty uh, as that. That was the temple. Now let's just look together in the last few moments we have at the materials that are used. There, <clears throat> we find them in these chapters 2, 3, and 4, and we are not going to go beyond them tonight. It's actually drawn on the back of this board a very rough map of the uh, tabernacle. This is the porch, this is the step. These are the two pillars on either side of the entrance. This is the tent of meeting, the old tent of meeting. That is the most holy place. Um, this great wall around was the 90 feet of the inside measurement. The ble the, we believe there were chambers all around, rooms all the way around uh, the uh, tower. Well, they were kind of lean-to uh, buildings, uh, built onto the outside of the actual temple, where the priests slept when they were on duty, and where uh, there were the treasuries and many other things. Of course, right round that were the, was the court, uh, here was the laver, and here was the altar. That's just a, a rough diagram. It is a crook for scale, but um, to give you some idea um, of it. Now let's look at some of the materials used. See if we can learn the last few moments something from the actual building of the of the uh, temple. One of the most wonderful things is the foundation. Now, the scriptures speak an awful lot about foundations. And, you know, the thing we find here is that Solomon began to build, in chapter 3 and verse 1, he began to build the house at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Now, I believe that's a very wonderful thing, because it just takes up all the history of David in a few words. In other words, here you've got Jerusalem again. You've got the ground. Here you've got Mount Moriah. Do you remember what Mount Moriah was? It was the flesh and floor of all in the Jebusite. The two greatest things. First, you've got the ground clear and taken and presented. And secondly, you've got the cross. Got these two things and the church is the result. First you see the ground. Then you must have a deep experience of the cross. And then the result will be the church. God produces the church organically spontaneously. In his life, the church starts to flow out. So it says very, very simply, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. It goes on to say, the very threshing floor of all the Jebusites. Now, this brings me to the foundation. You see, um, Mount Moriah was a peak, first peak in Jerusalem. The, to build the house of God, the whole peak had to be leveled. in order that a platform could be built of huge stones. And uh, if you read this, these few chapters, it will tell you, great stones, costly stones. Do you know that these stones, I've got the measurements here for you, some of them to this day are still there at the Mosque of Omar in uh, Jerusalem. They measure 30 feet in length, 
and seven and a half feet high and weigh a hundred tons each. That took all those thousands of men to get up from the valley right the way up into position. These great stones, huge things, some 24 feet, some 30 feet, some less than that, all put one after another into position. Huge things. Until in the end, the whole of the top of Mount Moriah was leveled off by slave labor. And then, stone after stone put into its place, until at last, a complete platform had been built upon the top, except for one solitary uh, crag that was allowed to remain within the platform, rising out from within it. And that was the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Upon that rough, unhewn rock, the altar was finally to be erected. Now this is the most remarkable thing for this very day. The rock is there in the mosque of Omar in Jerusalem. Uh, the platform's partly still there. Here it's called the pavement. Huge stones put together. It says in one, one traveler says that you can hardly put a penknife between those great stones. So beautifully fitted are those foundation stones. Now the scripture speaks an awful lot about these foundation stones. It says that the Lord Jesus is the chief cornerstone and the apostles and prophets with him are the foundation. Upon that we all grow, it says in Ephesians 2, into a holy temple. Here's a great foundation. Now there are some wonderful things mentioned about these stones. Josephus says that each one was cut out first, either from Lebanon, or from the hills near Bethlehem, or from actually the hills just around Jerusalem. They were cut out very carefully, and each one was marked on the side. That is, a mark was engraved into it. Then it was cut out perfectly to shape and to size. It was chiseled, and then its edges were beveled, and then it was removed to Jerusalem and put into its position. You know, this is absolutely true. The house of God uh, has its foundation universally, and eternally, the Lord Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of the prophets of the foundation. Each one singularly marked out and appointed of God. Each one beautifully cut out, quarried, chiseled and marked by appointment. It is also true of the house of God as locally expressed. They will always have that foundation. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation. You must get the ground when you've got the ground, you must come to an experience of the cross. But when you come into the experience of the cross, what does it happen? The first thing it does is you get the foundation. The Lord Jesus is the foundation. The very primary thing about any experience of the cross, in any of its aspects, is the Lord Jesus laid as a foundation. Not just as an individual foundation, <laughs> but as a corporate foundation. A common foundation. A common life. This is very important for us to understand but a foundation is there. You must have the ground before you can have that corporate foundation. And you must have an experience of the cross. But when you've got that, the foundation comes. Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, and then a foundation. You see the sequence. Jerusalem, 
then Mount Moriah, and then the foundation on Mount Moriah. What is the earliest mention of Mount Moriah in Scripture? The place where Abraham offered up his only son, Isaac. That's the God. He gave everything. He didn't give himself. He gave what was of God. What was given him of God. That was the beginning. That was the foundation. That was the place to become the foundation of the house of God. Marked forever. As Mount Moriah. So, well, let's get that very clear first of all. Those big foundation stones, my, they take some cutting, and I believe that in the work of God there are some big stones. I don't believe that all of the same size and shape and everything else. I believe that in the work of God there are some big stones and there are some small stones. All are important. The house cannot do without any one of them. But let us not think that at once all stars are the same in their glory. They don't. All stars, they all differ from each other in glory. There are some who are appointed of God and they have a greater measure of the grace of Christ. And others have not so much. And each will be judged according to the measure that was ministered to him. So we have this. Let each man keep to his own ministry, each to his own place. And then we all wonderfully work together. So we have the foundation, a very, very important part. Then the next thing we find are stones. These stones were a kind of marble. They were a white marble, a kind of white marble. They were very, very carefully fitted together. They were not the same size as the foundation stones. They were much smaller. But they were very, very carefully uh, shaped, first quarried, then shaped, then polished, and then put together. Now, isn't it an amazing thing that they were polished? Yet, evidently, according to as far as we know, they weren't just unhewn. They were actually uh, faced. And then they were put into place. But here's the remarkable thing. Nowhere inside the temple or outside the temple could you see any stone whatsoever. It was all entirely hidden. So you see how, how sure God is when he's got the house of God in view. He goes to a lot of trouble quarrying us. And shaping us. And fitting us. And giving us a good surface. A good polish. Only to cover it all up. Not with one layer. With wood and then with gold. You couldn't see a stone anywhere in the actual house. Not under you, not above you, not around. And yet all around you was stone, even the roof. So that's a remarkable thing, isn't it? What does stone speak of? It speaks of the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? God is the rock. In scripture everywhere, he's called the rock. The Lord Jesus is the rock. And he said to Peter that he was Peter. And upon this rock will he build his church. Now, isn't that a wonderful thing? The Lord Jesus, he used that, he, he played on the word Peter and the rock. Petra, Petra. And he just simply was saying, Peter, I'm going to put into you the same qualities that are in the rock. I'm going to build my church on this, of what I put into you. That's you and me. When we come to the Lord Jesus, well, there's not much of us, we're just clay in ourselves. No rock in us. There's no stone, there's no marble in us naturally. We're just clay. Nothing, nothing, nothing that God can use with. 
But you know, when God gets hold of us, he puts something of his own rock-like life into us. His own rock-like character into us. And then we start to be quarried. Now, this quarrying doesn't begin before we're saved. It begins after we're saved. And it only, and it only gets on a pace when there's any amount of the Lord Jesus in us. If there's no chiseling, no quarrying, no battering, no devastation, no cutting work, you can be quite sure there's not much of the Lord Jesus in your life. Quite sure. You're ob- obviously, uh, so far, you've not even been really, the Lord hasn't started quarrying. But once the work starts, once you start to feel those strange feelings, those strange moods, those things that come on you, uh, that you can't explain, that you never seem to have before you were the Lord, but now you have so often. That's the Lord, it's the chiseling, it's the cutting, it's the polishing, it's quarrying you out, he's doing something with you. Soon you'll be moved and you'll be fitted in with others. The first thing to do is, you, is to get the stones together. You can't put the wood on until you've got the stones together. The gold can't go on until you've got the stones together. The Lord doesn't put one stone, then puts wood all round it, then gold all round then it gets on with the next one. He must put all the stones together, one after another. Then he lines it all with, with cedar. Then he paints it all with gold. So the first thing is to be quarried, to have something of the Lord Jesus in us, put into us. Then to get onto the foundation. Then to be fitly framed with our brothers and sisters. Oh, what a business that is. To be fitly framed with our brothers and sisters. To be shaped. Now, this is a wonderful thing. Now, listen to me. The stones were numbered. So Josephus says, and I am sure that that is true. The stones were numbered. Each stone was shaped in a special way, and the next stone was shaped to fit in to that stone. Now, you might not like this, but it just simply means, speaking practically, brothers and sisters around you have been specially shaped for you. And you've been specially shaped for them. God doesn't have books like those books out there, all the same shape of the shape and size. I'm afraid God's living stones are all different shapes and sizes, but he cuts them, he cuts them different shapes and sizes, and then fits them together. God isn't a great sort of automatic machine that turns out all kinds of little stones, all the same size and shape and everything else. No, that everyone's got an individuality. And the wonderful thing is that we're told by ancient historians that when you looked at the stone, the grain ran right through. Grain ran right through. So that Josephus said it was the marvel of the ancient day that it would seem because you could not hear a hammer or a chisel there, you would think the thing had grown up like a flower. And when you looked at it, it just seemed as if it was all naturally there. Not as if one stone had been put there. Well, there's stones for you. And when God does all that work, do you know what he does? He hides it. And that's the one thing our self-life doesn't like. When God takes a lot of time with us and puts us through some deep experience, we do want to be seen. But God doesn't do that. His most precious things, he bevels. He puts a lot of work into it. And then he hides it all up. So that's one thing. Then look at the wood. There were three woods used in the, in the temple. Cedar wood, fir wood, and olive wood. Now what do these speak of? Cedar always speaks of nobility. The fir wood always speaks of durability. I understand that both cedar and fir never had a wood border. Mm, I wish we had more of it here. Um, no wood borders ever get into it. No worms, no rot ever attacks any form of cedar or fir or cypress wood. So I read today anyway. 
Now, if that is true, what a wonderful picture there is there of the durability of the humanity of the Lord Jesus. This wood speaks of humanity, but it speaks of a kind of humanity that's not subject to rot. It doesn't put up with a pet. It's an incorruptible kind of humanity. Now, we've all got a, a humanity that's corruptible. Our love for instance, can just be sheer sentiment. Our purity can be subject to corruption. That's why I believe Paul speaks of that loving the Lord and his people with a loving corruptible. He anticipates the Lord with a loving corruptible. So anyway, we see here cedar, nobility. You know, the Lord Jesus would have a nobleness about us. Our vow about our humanity, a nobility about us. We are sons and daughters of the king, and we should have a kingly character. Mm, this does not mean that we become spiritual, pious, pictures. That's a very wonderful thing. The palm tree always speaks of the land. You know, it was a symbol of the land of Palestine. It is to this day, the palm tree. And that speaks of fullness, the fullness of Christ. That's why it speaks of growing up like a palm tree, bearing fruit in old age. And righteousness and fullness. And then you find flowers, which always speak in the scripture of glory. Glory is associated with flowers, always. Glory, flowers are compared in their glory with the glory which is incorruptible. The lilies, the lily, glory. Ground for glory. The cherubim, the kind of man God wants. The cherubim, the symbol, the kind of man God so there we have something, and then you know it's all overlaid with pure fine gold. The whole thing just pure fine gold everywhere. Now it's not only you see that uh, that those stones had to be quarried and chiselled and bevelled and cut and fitted. The wood had to be engraved and embossed, carved. The gold had to be refined so that it was pure and fine. Every part of the temple went through the cross, some form of fire, some trial, to perfect it. And then we find precious stones, and I believe that's wonderful. When God has got all that, he's got a history, he's got stone inside, he's got wood next to it. Then he's got gold. Then he fits in the precious stones. They speak of all the most original, singular beauties of Christ. And I believe the Lord Jesus distributes them in his saints. So this saint speaks of this, and that saint, saint speaks of that. Each saint, as he goes on with the Lord, in the end becomes a diadem in the hands of our God. Something exceedingly precious, a gem of rare beauty. So there's, there it all is, very, very wonderful. And then we find the end something entirely different in the temple, two great cherubims of olive wood. They were enormous figures. Their wings spanned literally the whole distance. One of their wings spanned across there, the other across there. They touched end to end. But the remarkable thing about this cherubim was they did not look like the cherubim above the mercy seat, down upon the mercy seat, looking, as it were, into the ark. These looked toward down. Now, isn't that wonderful? First God speaks, you see, of a kind of man that can only come when this 
that is represented by the ark and the law within it is realized, the Lord Jesus. But let him get the Lord Jesus. And then let the Lord Jesus have his rightful place. And then the cherubim look out toward the world. Whole world taken into place. They look out, no longer down, but out. When God gets his kind of man, service, the service of God to this world begins. God's service is dependent upon the kind of man. So you see, there you have a secret of something very, very wonderful. Those cherubim that figured something. And two pillows, I think we'll close there, two pillows on either side. These were not in the other, uh, in the tabernacle. They were of bronze or brass. Great pillows. One was called Jacob. He will establish. The other was called Boaz, in him is strength. And they had lily work on top and pomegranates all around them, and chain work. There were two of them. What were they? They were they they speak of witness. Pillars in scripture always speak of witness or testimony. What did what did they a witness to? A wonderful witness. Pomegranates, lily work, all these things. What does this mean? It when the house was complete and you've gone through everything, you find two pillars outside that guard the entrance. What did he do? He will establish or support, and in him is strength. Now, isn't that a wonderful testimony? It reminds me of the Lord Jesus. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. There's a testimony. The whole history of God's people summarized at last in two pillars. Outside a built habitation of God. One said, He will establish it. The other said, In Him is the strength. Now that's a testimony. It's as if the purpose of God has reached a glorious consummation. Those pillars are bearing testimony to something. That's where it speaks later on, pillars in the house of our God. Pillars in the house of our God. There. You see, so much of the New Testament all goes back to the temple. Foundation stones, living stones built together, um, fitly framed together, growth into a holy temple in the Lord, pillars in the house of our God, and so on. We can go on and on and on and on uh, about these things. You see, it's all there. And then at last you find the vessels of the temple brought in, all the vessels. What do they speak of? Different aspects of Christ. <coughs> The candlestick, the showbread, the golden altar, the labor, the brazen altar. It's all there. Well, there we are. That's the building of the temple in those four chapters. Those are the materials used. That's how they came to be built together. What then, simply, we summarize everything. What do we learn then from that? These, simply these four things, I'll just read them to you, you go away. All and everything has one end. The building up of the house of God. Whether it's stone, whether it's wood, whether it's gold, whether it's precious stone, whatever it is, wherever it's going to be, foundation, roof, walls, or supporting timbers, beams, all has one end. To build up the house of God. Now the whole of the, of the epistles of the New Testament are summed up in that. Do everything to edification or building up. Let everything have this end, building up. Let nothing be done 
which does not build up. Everything has one end, to build up. And then all is produced out of what, what Christ did. Christ is the key. It's not us. It's what is of Christ. Being produced in us by the Holy Spirit. That is what's going into the temple. And then all is fitted together into one great whole. Whatever it is, all the different kinds of wood, the stone, the foundation, everything is fitted together into one great whole. Now listen. One piece could not make a temple. Like many foolish Christians think. One piece could not make a temple. It required them all. It did not require just two-thirds, or three-quarters, or seven-eighths. It required every single stone to build that house. Neither did it uh, need just a collection of stones. So let's all learn there. And the other thing is all the hardest and most difficult work was done off the site. See, people often say that, don't they? Right, they say, they seem to be so together. They seem to be so together. Of course, when we first come, we all think that, don't we? Oh, they all seem to be so together. Look at them. They all love each other. All so one, they're so fitly framed together. But then, of course, when we're here for a while, we see the inside. My, the hammering that goes on off the side. The battering that goes on off the side. To produce that. And I read one thing, and I want to leave with you. Uh, Archaeology has discovered uh, till recently something they couldn't understand. Just around Jerusalem and some of the quarries, they found quite a number of very large stones which had been marked out. Some of them had actually been cut, the cutting of guns, chiseling guns, to get them quarried, to get them out. Others, there were stones actually there that were roughly shaped. They had on them a mark. As they have investigated over the last few years, they have discovered that these marks were marks of Solomon's overseer. And they have come to the conclusion that these stones were stones that they started on and then rejected. That's a solemn reminder that having preached to others, we ourselves can be castaways, rejects. Not rejects as far as salvation is concerned, but rejects as far as the city is concerned. The final habitation of God. That's a tremendous thing. To think that the work had begun. To think that there was a stamp on it. And then it was laid on one side. It never got to the temple. It never got built in. Let us therefore all take great warning.